0: Protestant Christianity and how did it start? Is Protestantism about the head or the heart? What does Protestantism look like in the world today? And what extraordinary things have ordinary Protestants done? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Plimming. And in today's show, I'll be talking to Professor Alec Ryrie. Alec is Professor of the History of Christianity at Durham University and has written extensively on the history of Protestants in the world. And our question today is, therefore, how are Protestants still changing the world? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Alec Ryrie, welcome to Talking Theology. Great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, first of all, tell us about your role here in Durham and uh, also your engagement with the church. Give us a picture of you.
1: Well, I'm a, I'm a historian by training, um, and I came here to Durham 12 years ago to teach Reformation history um, in the Department of Theology and Religion. Um, and before then, I taught in a history department mm. where I was one of a, a Dozen or so modern historians. I was one of four or five working on the sixteenth and seventeenth century. I had to find my own little patch and stick to it. When I came to this department, I found that I had the more or less the whole second millennium to myself. <laughs> um, that we've we've since acquired a medievalist and a, a and a late modern scholar, but it gave me some space to sort of to, to stretch out um, and find. You know, wider vistas to to wander around and one of the real pleasures of of teaching in Durham has been to be able to to do that and range more widely across the 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 implications and consequences mm-hmm. the kind of history that I study in particular teasing out their relevance to the kind of theological and devotional issues that we we deal with as as, as church people mm-hmm. today um which is where I come to the second half of your of your question. Um, I'm I'm an Anglican reader. Um, Tell so us what was, that means. Uh, uh, in, that's, uh, well, what does that mean? That's a, <laughs> a, 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 an open question. Um, a licensed lay preacher yeah. um, within the within the Church of England. So I I assist in in preaching and leading worship in my in my parish church. is a is a, a little rural church um, on the County Durham Northumberland border. Um, where we 've lived since we moved here in in two thousand and seven um i 'd been licensed as a reader for for ten years before that um so i i 'll be coming up on my twenty fifth anniversary of of reader ministry before, before there's quite a lot of long, sermons and a, a, that 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 is quite a lot of sermons um and i 'd be lying if i said there hadn 't been a little bit of of um returning to themes, reshaping yes of of course one never repeats a sermon um
0: but but occasionally you know some some things bubble back to the surface we've um we've taken as our topic today the protestants um a topic on which i've thoroughly enjoyed your writing and um tell us what it was that um made you want to kind of spend so much time looking at the protestant movement as a whole where did that interest start Um,
1: well, I, in, in academic terms, I am a historian of the Reformation. That's how I how I how I first um, you know, got into the the, the whole field, um, and I was drawn to the to the Reformation as one of the most obvious points in the whole history of of Christianity, where you can really see that theology matters; that this is the the, you know, the ideas are the driving force. Behind what what happens in in in, in those events, um, as a historian, a lot of the times when you're dealing with the, the history of Christianity, you're, you're looking at how secular and political and economic and cultural issues are, are are interwoven with the with the history of the church, as of course they must be. A lot of secular historians tend to assume that those are what these things are really about. That religion is a cover for other things. Um, and so I was drawn to the Reformation as the point where that's really plainly and obviously not the case. You cannot understand this event without um, you know, t- taking taking it it theologically seriously. You don't need to like it, but I think you've got to recognise that that's what's going on. But I was first studying the the Reformation as a postgraduate in 1993, ninety four. A long time ago now. Um. Which was also, as you'll remember, the year that South Africa was going through the the heart of its um, democratic transition, and I mean that's part of the world that, that that means a lot to me. I was following it very closely at the time, and it kept striking me looking particularly at the role of the churches on all sides mm-hmm. in that debate, and particular the role of the the Afrikaner Dutch Reformed Church, the the the. I think really pivotal role that it played in bringing a large part of the white South African community to repentance um and you know to to a a belated but i i think profoundly sincere repentance. And it struck me then, looking at that process, this is, this is the Reformation. These are the same issues that I'm studying in the 16th century, playing out in the life of this self-consciously Calvinist community. And since then, I'd had in the back of my mind the sense that, you know, the Reformation may be something that happened in the 16th century, but it's not over. Um, that the dynamic that drove those first Protestants is still at work today um and so for a long time i sort of cherished the 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 hope that you know wouldn't it be nice to do something that tries to tell the story mm. of protestantism not simply as something that happened around martin luther and john calvin and other men with beards but something that has fanned out across the world and down the centuries and the same story is still visibly playing out today and then realizing that the 20th anniversary the the 20th anniversary the 500th anniversary of, of martin luther's 95 theses was coming up in 2017 i thought well you know this is too good an opportunity to miss um and i had a stab at at writing that kind of account trying to take the story from the the moment when luther did or almost certainly didn't um hammer his 95 theses to the to the door of wittenberg church to the Global
0: Protestant yeah. movement that we have today. It'd be good to explore those two poles uh, in our time together, Alec. What's um, let's go back to to the beginning. Um, Luther, Calvin, Moore, Who were the Protestants? Where did it begin? And, and, and kind of what were the what were the impulses that shaped Protestantism as a movement initially?
1: That's a really tricky question, um, because you know, there's so many different ways of answering it. There are theological answers about what defines this this movement, and you know, Luther, of course, famously defined it as as being about faith alone and Scripture alone and 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 um, grace and Christ and God's glory. Um, but you know, th- that that series of of Simple unities driving driving the movement. That sense of this is a, as as a movement about radical simplification, returning to, to what he saw um, as as an apostolic faith. Um, and then there's the the different strands that Protestantism takes up from the from the beginning. So there's a you know there's there's that theological sense. There's also a, a kind of ecclesiological definition that would want to say that. This is about a rejection of the idea of a magisterium, of a central authority, which can definitively establish truth on behalf of the Christian community as a whole, um, but instead requires each believer to stand before God directly and to, to, to obey your own conscience the sense of the sovereign conscience of which which you know is so important to luther
0: so there's a simplification of theology there and a simplification of hierarchy they to say it. yes i in-
1: mean but it, and it's not necessarily a simplification in some ways the catholic structure is much simpler it's a it's a unity um the the protestant structure and i think you know the, the i think this is one of the reasons why the word protestant has has stuck it is that that sense of of rejection that's built into it, um, you know, Protestants argue and fall out with each other and splinter. And okay, they sometimes find ways of hanging together sometimes for a very long time, but in the end, if the if the decision is to be made between truth and unity, if you're a Protestant, in the end, you're, you're going to choose truth over unity um and and you 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 would frame it in those in those terms you see you know ultimately there comes a point where you're willing to to walk out in order to preserve your your understanding of, you know what your conscience has been has been convicted of um but the way that i want to define it is steps back from that sort of the, the, those kind of theological or structural definitions important as as they are because it seems to me that both for Luther and for really all of the different flavors of Protestantism that's that followed him, this is an an emotional story, a story of heart religion, um, more than or before it's a theological story. I, I think, like most of us, Luther makes a set of, of of almost intuitive decisions, at least decisions with his whole self, um, realizations about the the nature of God, the nature of humanity, the nature of his need for God and of God's love for him, which he finds utterly overwhelming. That they, you know he he, he you know is, is is turned completely upside down by this, and he then works out what this must mean theologically he finds ways of of structuring his his thought and his reading of scripture in order to make sense of of what he's experienced but i i do think that as with paul on the Damascus Road, the experience is primary and that's the that that's his hermeneutic, as it were.
0: Um, that's that, the lens the, he uses to really to view everything else through yeah, that, it's that uh, encounter that it, shaped everything. Exactly. I mean the 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 way that I've I've talked about it
1: before is that for for Luther his faith is a is a love affair. It has that kind of of intensity Um, that sort of desolation that's attached to it, the kind of slack-jawed amazement that his beloved could ever love him, Um, the utter refusal to believe that he deserves that love and the utter confidence that he nevertheless has it, Um, that sense of of being overwhelmed Mm -hmm. by it. Um, and, of course, because Luther was a doctor of theology, it, he he then comes along and finds ways of of expressing that systematically. And many of the other Protestant theologians who follow him, who are often rather more rigorous and precise in their thought than Luther was... Um, managed to nail down the various loose edges that he is that he has left flapping. I mean, and, and Calvin supremely um, you know, ma- manages to do this as a systematician, but that sense of the the underlying love affair never goes away. I mean, Calvin, who does not have a great reputation as a theologian of the heart. Um I think nevertheless that's 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 very clear in him and sometimes it just bursts through his 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 writing. And that's something I see again and again through the history of Protestantism. And really that when I, when I was trying to write this long history, that became one of the the principal themes that drew me, looking for the the places you know, again and again in seventeenth century england in the evangelical revivals of the of the 18th century in germany in america then you know across the 19th century united states all over the world in the 20th century you see that same kind of of heart religion reappearing um very often the people discovering these things in each generation feeling that it's something new um and then so that, you hold you hold it alongside something that somebody else had written 200 years before and you think this is this is the same thing
0: it reminds me with uh, Cranmer who is our one of our greatest english uh, reformation theologians and his liturgy in the Book of Common Prayer, you know, the opening call it for purity, for all heart, of all whom all hearts be open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hidden. There's something about the affections of the heart, isn't there, that comes out again and again, even through his writing. I, I think this is very much the case. And, and of course,
1: I, I don't want to, to give the impression that you know, Protestant traditions and, and theology all have this, you know, uh, a, a tremendous hand waving openness there's a there's a, a a a a rigor and a discipline and you know I'm from Scots presbyterian stock a dourness um in in much of this but often when you have those intensely disciplined um theological and devotional structures that only makes the emotional intensity of what's experienced through it Mm. all the more striking so really what what i was was trying to do in in that book and what i've done in some of my other work is trying to tell a kind of an emotional history Mm. a history of this this love affair which has sometimes been you know an affair pursued with wild abandon and has sometimes been a, a, a sort of decorous arranged marriage um but there's always been that sort of flame smouldering there and it, it it often doesn't take much to, 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 to make it flare up again.
0: How has the Bible been treated or formed Protestant thinking and life for good or ill over the years? Well, give me some sense of the trends that you've seen as you looked at this. That's a really interesting
1: question because,
0: I mean, of course the Bible
1: is... Is and has been central to to Protestant thought and identity from the very beginning. That's what Luther takes his takes his stand on, um, and the the idea that the the Bible is the word of God and should be accessible to to every believer, and that we all stand equally before mm. it, has to most Protestants through most of history, seemed like such a self-evident truth that you, you only need to state it. You don't even need to, to to argue for it. And yet it's also been clear from the beginning that Protestants haven't agreed. I mean, not only they haven't agreed on, on, on what the Bible means and on how to interpret it. I mean, that's, that's I think, obvious. Um, but they haven't quite agreed on what it is and on how. One ought to, to 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 read it, and the way that I came to 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 thinking of this is that there are there are two modes in which Protestants read the Bible, and they've done you know these two modes you can see them both in Luther, you can see them in that first generation. I think you can see them both running in parallel and sort of in dialogue with each other through in in most um Protestant communities from from then till now um and the first of those is is the sort of precise polemical confrontational one the, the the one which lends itself to proof texting um so that when luther and his his great early protestant rival huldrych zwingli fell out over the meaning of the lord's supper um you know quite what 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 is the nature of christ's presence in the the sacramental bread and wine if indeed he is present um and they pursue that with textual precision. They dive deep into the words, into the Greek, um, and and are construing it. And you know, the, the assumption that they both share is that if they can work out what the precise meaning of these words is, then they will be able to solve this problem and to convince their opponent of it. Um, and that's that's something which they need to be able to do. You know, they they need this this text as a as 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 something solid, something resisting that they can get their get their teeth into and and and, and use as um as 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 a theological resource to carve. Um but of course in the end they can't do it. They can't actually establish um a, a set of definitions from the text that is going to successfully persuade the other. And, you know, a large part of the history of theological controversy is, is of people looking at the same text and being unable to make the other person see in it what they see, and being unable to see what the other person sees in it. Um, and so, I think you need the second mode of, of 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 looking at the Bible as well, which is the the more um, devotional, experiential encounter with it. Um, one of the 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 great Luther scholars of our generation, Scott Hendricks, um, says that for for Luther, the Bible is not a set of of mathematical propositions from which truth can be deduced by a set of logical processes. Um, it's a work of art. And he encounters it in that sense I mean in in to to use my favorite image I'd say you know it's a set of love letters um, and I think the clue to the importance of this is how little Protestants have to say about what one might think is sort of a, a, a central point um, and, you know a question that Catholics have repeatedly asked them, which is this bible these 66 books how do you know that it is the word of god and these 66 and no more and no less um and protestants have usually been strangely slow to come up with an answer to that and i, I think this is not because they they find it a, a difficult case to make you know they'll produce all kinds of of, of historical and textual arguments why it must it must be so but more because I think they really don't feel the urgency of it. Calvin's answer to this question, and it's one that's picked up right across the tradition in different ways, even by people who've never read a word of Calvin and don't realize they're echoing the the argument, um, is that scripture is Hmm. self-authenticating. That you know it's true because of the witness of the spirit in your heart when you read it. And, of course, As a polemical argument, as a way of persuading somebody who disagrees with you, that's useless because effectively all you're saying is, you know, I I I know it's true because I just know, because when I because of what I feel when I read it, I I think this is, you know, this fits very well with Calvin's uh, doctrine of predestination. That you know, there if if you're one of the elect, then you see it, and if you're not, then you don't. Um. And, of course, many Protestants have wanted to leave that behind. But I think that sense of the, the Bible, yes, it functions as a, as a theological textbook, as a source for proof texting and, and, and for argument. But beneath that or before that, it functions as an arena where the believer encounters the spirit and it's the witness of the spirit through scripture which seems to me to be the 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 force which drives those repeated flareings up um of, of 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 protestantism and of course either one of these can go wrong that you can be too latched into the proof-texting precision and those are the points at which at various times in its history, Protestant movements have have fossilized and have become excessively rigid. And I, mean, I think of, of of the way that um, Orthodox Lutheranism went in the in the later 17th century, and you know, you, you maybe um, some may want to think of some more modern examples as well. Um, and equally, you can see how spirit-led movements have have gone off the rails. At times, and have lost the discipline of being held by a, 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 a fixed text, and you've seen various prophetic movements that have have, have flamed out or have have have, have collapsed into to, to scandal or chaos or or, or uncertainty without having the, the 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 fixed text to hold them in. It's where the two have worked together um, in various protestant movements down the centuries i mean i think methodism did this superbly well in terms of managing that that synthesis um that that you can really see the these churches having the life within them that allows them to flourish but also the discipline and the direction which keeps them together
0: i'm conscious also when i read the book that there were a lot of stories that were unreported to me in terms of stories of individuals who haven't made the headlines, but who might be, we can't say Protestant saints, but certainly <laughs> Protestant uh, heroes in terms of the impact they've had. Do you want to just share a, a few of those? Uh, uh, and why they sort of strike you as kind of important stories for us to hear well i i, I i'd
1: want to defend the use of the of, of the word saints you know in the in i thought the, you in, might in the, in the in the Pauline term uh, th- that holy that, ones uh, that has has is, is a, a um a label to be expanded um rather than than, than restricted to to particular individuals um Yes, I mean the the reason I called the book Protestants rather than Protestantism, um, is that you know as a historian, ultimately, really what I'm interested in is 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 people um, and looking at the the flawed and messy, you know, rarely you know, straightforwardly heroic, but often remarkable people who 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 um, you know. Are just as foolish and and messy and sincere um, as as we are, um, but you simply happen happen to have lived a couple of hundred years ago. Uh, and so, a lot of the time when I've been talking about this book, I've been trying to to, to pick out some of the individual stories. Some of them, you know, in to a degree inspiring um some of them often more as as sort of ghastly warnings yeah. so you know, you you um, th- th- there are figures who it's it's easy to condemn um until you think well, you know, really would would I have yeah. done any 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 differently in that situation and sometimes you see figures who who transcend both categories um I mean, at the modern end of the story, there's one one individual who's, whose name we don't know um, and who I, 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 I think is probably still alive, um, who was a, a young man who testified before the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um this was a, a, a white South African who had worked for the apartheid state security services in the nineteen eighties um and had belonged to one of their death squads, so who is assassinating leaders of the anti apartheid movement, um and, you know, the, the members of the African African National Congress and other 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 resistance movements. Um and after the the fall of apartheid um this man Came before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and testified as to what he had done um, and what uh, and, 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 and what his colleagues had done, and yeah, as 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 many people did. And the reason he struck me is not for what he said in his testimony, but from uh, an interview that he gave afterwards anonymously, um, in which he explained why he had chosen to do this and described with a a candor, which I found very striking, how some of the atrocities which he had been ordered to do had, had awoken his conscience, that he had found the orders he was being given to be incompatible with his deeply held Calvinist faith and so had made the, the extraordinarily costly decision to stand up against his, his former colleagues um, and to denounce what he had done and what they had done. Um, a, a decision which he attributed plainly and, and simply to his faith. And, of course, there are layers of self-deception and self-justification and so forth in that sort of story, but it also strikes me that that ability to confront you with yourself and bring you to a place of repentance is one of the things that Protestantism has made its specialism yeah. from the beginning. So it, it seems to me that that's a that's a, a, a story. It's not a heroic one, but it's one that's got got some real some real truth in it. Um, there are, you know. You know, repentance is you know, true repentance is 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 something, you know, that's that's not so common in human affairs that we should let it go past when it when it happens and I think it's worth celebrating when we when we see it.
0: Tell us as we um reflect on the whole story and all your experience of writing in this area, what is it that's connected with you and has remained to you it may be that um, feeling of the value of repentance as a, as a, as something that protestantism has made possible um, maybe something else that's really connected with you as a as a uh, licensed lay preacher as a historian as an academic and also as a just as a christian
1: well uh, by by way of answering that let me tell you one other personal mm. story which mm. has, has has struck with me this one is a, is a is a more Straightforwardly um, heroic one from a from a somewhat earlier period, um, and this is this is you know, largely taken from a, from a, a wonderful book by John Sensback called Rebecca's Revival. Um, this is about a a girl who was born into slavery on the the island of Antigua in the seventeen twenties. Um, was then. Captured or sold, it's not clear which, um, onto the, to, to the neighboring island of St. Thomas that's now in the U.S. Virgin Islands. It was a Danish colony in those days. Um, and was raised in her owner's Calvinist faith. Um, and he also gave her the only name by which we, we know her, Rebecca. Um, and set her free when she died. So she was freed as a, as a teenager. And shortly after that, Moravian missionaries arrived on the island to begin um the work of 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 trying to preach to the enslaved population, which is an extraordinarily difficult and dangerous thing to do. Um, and she became one of their early converts and as a teenager central to their to their mission. You know, she was she was a black woman, she could she spoke many of the island's languages. She could move freely in a way that these German missionaries could not um and within months their letters home are saying you know she is central to our enterprise everything depends on her um so much so that one of the missionaries decides to marry her um, she seems to have been slightly uneasy about this and and the the deal seems to have been that they were going to adapt uh, adopt a dozen orphans as as sort of her price of, of of agreeing to the to the marriage um of course the marriage is also a, a really provocative statement about racial equality within within that context. And it leads to their both being, the husband and wife, both being arrested um, on, on trumped-up charges. And she is effectively told that she has to choose between renouncing her marriage and her Moravian faith um, or being sold back into slavery. And th- that she's she's given this choice repeatedly and she refuses. She will not budge on this. That for her this is this is a matter of conscience. It's a um you know it's 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 a here I stand moment. Um, and she holds firm and it's only that the chance arrival of their, their church's principal noble patron on the island, who sort of manages to tidy the whole thing over between gentlemen, um that that avoids her her, her being thrown into this awful fate. And she is then, she and her new husband are deported um, and they return um, to, uh, to, to, to Germany, to the church's home territory. The husband dies en route and she returns to discover that she's a celebrity. The community have been reading about her in the in, in the letters from the from this mission for, for for years. They they know who she is. She's welcomed as a hero. She is ordained as a deaconess. She's one of the the very first women to be or, uh, to be um, uh, to be ordained in a Protestant church, um, and then marries a Ghanaian who had himself, by a, a, a almost equally remarkable set of, of, of adventures, found his way to the same community and then they eventually um, go back to, um, to, to to West Africa and, 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 and live and work there for, for, um, for the remainder of their lives. Not entirely happily, but that's a slightly different story. Um, that's that story of you know this this extraordinary woman and the the three continents that she works her way through and the steeliness of 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 the decisions that she that she takes starting from literally nowhere um strikes me as as saying something about protestantism um as well as about her uh the way that it is It has within itself the potential to to upend our notions of hierarchy and propriety and who ought to speak and who ought not to and who has the intellectual or social qualifications to allow them to be heard. Um, It strikes me that there's something apostolic about that kind of, of ministry. Um, her ability to to respond to the call that she's been given and to live it out um, in the environment in which she in which she finds herself, that ability to pick people up and to to mobilise gifts wherever they might be, seems to me that's something that Protestantism has been good at over the course of, of 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 the last few centuries. It's something that's happening at an unprecedented scale around the world today. Um, you asked, is it happening in the in the course of of, of my own ministry? I don't know whether the, the role of being a reader within the Church of England allows for such things. Um, but if you ask for my sense of where the the future of of Protestant Christianity is, it's to that sort of unexpected hidden movement that I think we need to look.
0: That's a, an inspiring and a thought-provoking place on which to end. Alec Rari, thank you so much for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal Durham. Cranmer Hall is a theological college within St. John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmerhall.com.